Thanks, Jeff. Um, good morning, Trinity. I'm Ronnie Garcia. So today's a really special day for me because uh, my brother Diego and his sweetheart Karina are here. Now, if you grew up in my house, you would understand why he would say, goodness, their standards for letting people preach are extremely low. So, um, but it's great. It's great to have him here. Uh, they worked with us um, on Friday. It was awesome. Now, if you're a visitor, uh, you'll notice that we are in the middle of a sermon series on John's first epistle. And we're taking time to study this ancient letter because the questions that John's church had are incredibly similar to questions of modern people. See, John was writing about 50 years after the resurrection, and he had relocated from Jerusalem to Ephesus, which is like modern-day Turkey. And while this young church, these churches were growing in extraordinary ways, there was also some really weird stuff going on. Very specifically, there was this group of people in those churches that were deeply influenced by a strain of thought called proto-Gnosticism. I know it's fancy talk this morning. but So full-blown Gnosticism would come about a century or so later, but we see its beginnings already. And so what was happening is that this group of people who purported to be Christians claimed that they had this secret knowledge, this gnosis. Apparently, they had this secret spirituality, and they thought that they were better than everyone else. No one else knows what they know, and they began to secede from the church. It seems that they thought they were too spiritual, too cool for school for the rest of the church, or for the average to below average Christians like us. And uh, now, as you can imagine, this is, um, you know, understandably pretty upsetting. It made people insecure about their faith. And they asked themselves, do I even measure up? I mean, if these people have this secret spiritual insight and, and we don't have that, then does this mean that we aren't even Christians, that we don't measure up? So the Apostle John, the author of this letter who was with Jesus, like he would have none of that. John writes this letter so as to show that those guys are just a bunch of counterfeits. And for the rest of us who are looking for certainty, uh, who are looking for intimacy and security, he offers us assurance. Now, the way that John goes about distinguishing real authentic Christianity from this counterfeit is that he provides these three different tests there's this behavior test, a love test, and a doctrine test. And all of these tests are interconnected, and you need all three of them to kind of work together. So last week, we looked at the behavior test, and we talked about how if people think that they don't sin, they're super self-deceived, right? They fail the test. Rather, evidence of true faith is not moral perfection, but humbly acknowledging the mess that you've made. And then you look, to, uh, you look for a community to live transparently uh, within fellowship. And when you do that, there's this alignment between your words and your actions, right? Now, today we're going to look at this second test, this love test. And, and, and here's what's behind John's love test. It's that there is a way in which a person can say that they have the truth right, in a general way, but the truth never really gets inside. 
right? It never melts you into a profoundly loving person. So these people wanted security. And so John says, do you want to know if you truly love God? Or better yet, do you really want to know how to know if you're truly loved by God? It's if you love your brothers and your sisters. Because you can't say that you love God the Father if you don't love his children, right? You, kind of, you understand this, right? You can't say you love me unless you love my bride, Amanda, because we're kind of a package deal, right? Well, before we dive into our text, some of you might already have your guards up a little bit, right? You say, Ronnie, I'm not exactly a lovey-dovey person. I'm not a hugger. What, Christians have to be huggers now? You know, uh, no... That's not what's going on here. Everyone chill. This isn't about uh, temperament, right? Uh, This is allowing God's love to change you at the constitutional level. Recently, I read a toast that a best man gave at a wedding, right? He got up in front of everyone with a champagne glass, and everyone grew quiet because the best man was the brother of the groom. And so he says... It's no secret that I've never liked you, right? All of our lives we have fought and we have argued. We are like oil and water, and still to this day we are very, very different. But ever since you met your wife, I have really grown to like you. The more you're with her, the more I'm drawn to you. The more you're with her, the more I want to be with you. The more you're with her, the more I see the best version of you. The more you are with Jesus, the more you love him, the more that you're loved by him, the more it changes you. Because when you have a train wreck with the love of God, it leaves a mark. It makes you lovely. It makes you a better version of yourself. It makes you love your brothers and sisters the way that God does. Now, this is not, listen, everyone, this is not a precondition for God's love. This is the effect of God's love. It leaves a mark. And for this reason, John offers this test, this exam, so that we can self-examine, right? So we can examine ourselves. Now, our study of this passage is going to have three parts. First, we're going to see in verses 7 and 8 the basis of this test. And then verses 9 through 11, we're going to see the test itself. And then verses 12 through 14, we're going to see the resources to live into this love. So without further introduction, let's uh, turn our attention to God's sacred word. You have it in your bulletin. Would you please, in reverence to God's word, stand with me. This is 1 John chapter 2, starting in verse 7. Beloved, I am writing to you no new commandment. But an old commandment that you have had from the beginning. The old commandment is the word that you have heard. At the same time, it's a new commandment that I'm writing to you, which is true in him and in you, because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. Whoever says he is in the light and hates his brother is still in darkness. Whoever loves his brother abides in the light, and in him there is no cause for stumbling. But whoever hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in the darkness and does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. I am writing to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven for his name's sake. 
I'm writing to you fathers because you know him who is from the beginning. I'm writing to you young men because you have overcome the evil men, the evil one. I write to you children because you know the father. I write to you fathers because you know him who is from the beginning. I write to you young men because you are strong and the word of God abides in you and you have overcome the evil one. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of God will endure forever. May he bless it for you and for the preacher. Amen. You may be seated. You know how um, in the college years, like, students are like, oh, man, I'm, like, so busy. My schedule's so hectic. But in reality, they will never have more time with so little responsibility, and nor will they ever be so free again in their life. Well, uh, it was during my college years where, like, the Lord really captivated my heart. And with all my free time, I started, like, reading every theological book I could, right? No ladies and booze for me. It was all Puritan and Reformed theologians. Uh, But I know, it's funny, right? Uh, So what woke my imagination was really the amazing coherency and continuity of the whole Bible, from the Old Testament to the New Testament, I mean, from Genesis to Revelation. I mean, over the course of 1,500 years, about 40 different authors from vastly different backgrounds, three languages, various countries, and the basic plot line of the Bible stays amazingly consistent. And to be a little reductionist, the Bible tells a story about God's plan to restore the whole world using his people who who love God and who love one another so powerfully, so contagiously, that it draws every person from every nation into this kind of holy curiosity with God and ultimately into surrender through Jesus Christ. Loving God and loving neighbor is not a New Testament idea. This is the great commandment. It was first present in the Old Testament, like passages like Leviticus 19 that we heard this morning in our Old Testament reading. But the problem, what happened, what happened in the Old Testament is that these Jewish leaders began to use the commandments not to produce love for others, but to feel superior to them, to justify themselves. And so this is where the Apostle John begins, right? He begins his test with a little prologue about the basis of this love test. He says in verse 7, he says, I'm writing no new commandment, but an old one that you've had from the beginning. So this is a reference to the Old Testament. It's as old as the hills, but it's also as new as the morning dew, right? Verse 8, he says, at the same time, it's a new commandment. And he says, which is true in him and in you, because the darkness is passing away. Now, what's all that about? What's that about? What is new about this ancient commandment? And it's Jesus. It's Jesus. See, no one has ever, no one's ever loved like Jesus. See, in the Old Testament, you were told to love those in your tribe. And then Jesus comes along and he says, no, love your enemies. And so he tells a story about the good uh, Samaritan, the parable of the good Samaritan. And with it, he illustrates sacrificial love and service 
to people who are otherwise repulsive to you, like people from the other political party, right? I mean, who does that, right? The whole world, the whole world operates on a system of just retribution or quid pro quo or eye for an eye, right? This is how the Bible, be- this is how the Bible begins. God looks at Adam and he says, keep my commandments and if you do, you will live forever. He disobeyed, of course. But then God looks at the second Adam, Jesus, and he says, keep my commandments, and if you do, I will crush you and hang you on a tree. And Jesus obeyed. Why? To purchase and to love his enemies. Listen, the wideness of our love is one of the unique aspects of Christianity. It would be weird for a religion to characterize their God with such breathtaking, beautiful love, and yet the followers of that religion say, nah, I'm good, (laughs) right? This is extraordinary love, which is true in him, as John says, and it can be true in us. In fact, it must be true. There is no philosophy or religion that is so explicit in insisting that we should care and love people who do not agree with us, right? We must love people from a different tribe. Listen, if you will lean into this way of loving, you will stick out. The whole world is sick with tribalism. It is sick with very small hearts. Both the religious sector and the secular culture, guys, are guilty of this. Both the right and the left. Both sides use their so-called orthodoxy to make the other side feel really small. Both sides protect and love their own interests more than loving the other. What What if Jesus did that? What if Jesus did that? If you can be enchanted with Christ's big heart, it will expand yours. You won't have to win every conversation. You won't be afraid of being misunderstood. You won't feel superior to other people who make different choices than you. You won't judge me just because I put a little extra MSG on my food. See, the whole world thinks that they're better than everyone else. They think that they have the secret knowledge or the mysteries to the world, and they walk out on relationship, just like the people in John's community. But Christians, we do the opposite. We humbly lean in with love. Listen, Jesus made a Samaritan in his parable, a Samaritan, which is functionally a pagan, everyone, the hero of his story. And when he did that, he wasn't trying to baptize the religious system of belief, but he was drawing our attention to the intrinsic good of big hearts towards people who are outside of our tribe. Jesus loved and died for us, and we were all outside of his tribe. This is the basis of this love test. So that's the first step. Now, okay, let's turn our attention now to the second point. We looked at the basis, but let's consider the test itself. So in the following verses, verses 9, 10, and 11, 
John is going to reference relationships with brothers. Now listen, everyone, it's really careful that you, important that you get this. When John talks about brothers, and you'll see this in verse 9, 10, and 11, what he really means is friends. It's friends. See, John envisions a new spiritual family not related by blood. These are friends who choose to stick together as if they were family. And that's why he uses this language of brothers, even though there's no blood relationship. Now, that clarification is incredibly important. For its time, the Bible has some really countercultural teachings on friendship. So, for instance, in, in Proverbs 18, he says, There is a friend who sticks closer than a brother. Now, this is proposing the idea that a friend can be better than a brother. How come? Because a brother is like your blood, right? You have to love him, but you don't have to like him, right? But a friend is someone who has chosen you. It has no biological or civic interest. And a friend is not there just for adversity. They're that for that too, but he's there all the time. He or she sticks with you. Your friend has a, a passionate commitment to you, not, not just contractual or biological obligation. So this in part explains why John uses profound friendship as a means for self-examination. Friendship with one another is a marker for a person's love for Christ, and therefore it's at the very center of John's love test. Look in verse 9. It says, Whoever says he is in the light, or, like, or has the truth, and hates his brother, now remember brother is not talking about sibling, it's talking about friendship so profound that it creates a new kind of family, but if you hate your brother, what's he say? You're in darkness. In the next verse, verse 10, he offers the inverse reality. He says, whoever loves his brother abides in the light, abides in this truth. So walking in the truth, the light, and loving friendship are bound together. You see that? So one is a consequence of the other. And then in verse 11, he, he repeats this test in the negative. He says, whoever hates his brother, well... You're something other than a Christian. John is saying you couldn't possibly have Christ's love coursing through your veins because a train wreck with Christ's love leaves a mark. And you see this in your friendships, in your friendships. Now, this insistence on friendship, this friendship love, is not an arbitrary test. And let me explain using C.S. Lewis's um, discussion in his book, The Four Loves. So, Friendship is absolutely required to help you to become something more than what you are because it's the one relationship that will always get hedged out. I saw this meme. Uh, I think Rosalini said it to me. This meme, he says, no one ever talks about Jesus's greatest miracle of having 12 close guy friends in his 30s, you know? Because friendship's hard. And uh, the problem is, is... Um, I mean, we have companions, we have strategic social relationships, but we don't have friends, and we're the worst for it. We're the worst for it. In our modern and liberal society, the kind of love that is privileged is erotic and romantic love. And just as a side note, this is why actually our national conversation about who is allowed to love who seems impossible. Any restrictions on romantic love 
is tantamount to attacking a person's rights and dignity. Why? Because that subverts our cultural golden calf. And so people on opposite sides are like two trains passing each other in the night. They are unintelligible to one another because their starting points are very different. But I digress. Back to my point. My children know 1,000 songs about lovers. They know zero songs about friends. Zero. Moreover, we live in an incredibly busy and transient time, but we will make a time, we will make time for romantic love because it's a biological necessity, right? Without romantic love, there is no procreation. You guys know how babies are made, right? I don't have to do that talk. Uh, without romantic love, there is no pro, pro, uh, procreation, and no matter how busy we are, romantic love, erotic love, finds a way. In a traditional culture, very similar to what uh, the Apostle John is writing in, uh, family love, family love was privileged. In the context of a family, a person is reared and oriented to the world, and this is also a social necessity. No matter how busy, family love, however broken or dysfunctional, will be present in our lives. Family have to be there for you, even if they're busy. Erotic love and family love will push itself on you. But friendship love won't. In both traditional and modern cultures, you will find romantic relationships or, or vocational networking, but true friendship will not force itself on you. And yet, it is crucial because friendship introduces something into your life that nothing else will bring. Listen, look, we, we all like to think that we are self-made, right? That we, have that we have become who we have set out to become. We did this. We are super naive. When you were young, you were shaped by your family, and when you grew up, you were formed by your community. In the words of C.S. Lewis, it makes the cruel more cruel and the pious more pious. Your community possibilitizes and shapes who you are becoming. Friendship makes you something more than you are. See, in, in a romantic relationship, you experience a direct emotional impact. But in friendship, it's manifest in the results. It's, it's like the tenor of your life. Lovers, they look at each other and they talk about their love. But friends, they don't look at each other and talk about their love. They stand beside each other. They look at a common object and they walk together and they dream together. In order to walk in the light, to use John's words here, we need deep, profound friends to shape us to become something greater than what we are. And in fact, love for Jesus is evident not in romantic love or national love, vocational love, or love of knowledge, it is in holy friendship, love for your brothers and your sisters. To John, the only people who have had this train wreck with God's love, only people who have had this train wreck with God's love could make friendship with God and with one another um, the most important thing, the, 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 the basis of our most meaningful relationships. And you'll make time for it, even when it's culturally and biologically undervalued. You know why? 
because it's supernatural. It's supernatural. All right, let me um, summarize. As we consider this self-examination or this love test, John offers us the basis, right, which is Christ's outrageous and wide love. And then we looked at the test itself. Love for Christ is manifest in our love for our friends. Now, we're on to our final point. John gives us the resources to live into this love. Now, why is this so significant? John anticipates that people will be discouraged, right? And my goodness, I can at least say he totally anticipates my heart, right? If you know me, I have a pretty sensitive conscience, and quite honestly, it's probably inappropriately calibrated too sensitively. Uh, One of my dark sins is um, one, there's a few, Uh, one is comparison, but it's not comparison in the way that you think. I don't usually compare things like who has the nicest car. Um, I do wish I had your car, but I'm not, it's not what, we're not talking about that right now. No, um, it's, uh, I, the comparison that's going on in my heart usually is um, I am comparing myself with really godly people that I admire, that I admire. I think to myself, do I have enough self-control? Do I read the Bible enough? Do I pray enough? Do I like wine too much? Uh, Are my friendships deep enough? Am I enough? Am I even really a Christian or am I just a fraud? I'm so thankful for this next section in verses 12 through 14. It helps me. I hope it helps you. It's a poem of sorts or elevated or poetic prose. You can see in your bulletin, the translators did you the favor of indenting it so that you would notice that it's poetic. Uh, So in the verses before, John is trying to afflict the comfortable. But in this section, he's trying to comfort the afflicted, all right? So John is not trying to eat your lunch with legalism. He shows that Christian love nourishes us as we understand that it is a process not a destination where we rest in God's love for us. And let me show you how John does this. The first thing to note is that John addresses three kinds of people. He says little children, fathers, and young men. And those three demographics are repeated twice. Now, as you can kind of intuit, according to John, all three groups of Christians, uh, all three groups are Christians, but they're in vastly different developmental stages, right? And yet, God loves them all. So Tim Keller, uh, when he was speaking about Luke chapter 8, a different part in the New Testament, he cites the story of the disciples in the boat with Jesus. So they're all there. A violent storm comes upon. Jesus is taking a nap. They're all scared out of their minds. And so they utter a prayer, the disciples. And their prayer sounds like this. Master, don't you even care that we're going to drown Well, that's a pretty lousy prayer. I mean, if we could just be clear about this. It's a prayer with very little faith, quite honestly. It's childish. And yet, how does Jesus respond? He just, he meets them where they're at, right? He doesn't get grumpy with them. He meets them where they're at. Because this is what a loving parent does. A parent sees where their child is and lovingly meets them there. So John writes using these three stages to comfort us who have not arrived. 
right? It speaks to God's loving and fatherly patience. But look, look at the details of what it, look at the, the actual details of what it says. So in, it says to fathers, and this repeats in 13 and 14, he says, they know him who is from the beginning, right? So he, he commends their sort of cognitive knowledge, their doctrine. That's important. Uh, to young men, he commends their, their will, their willpower. He says in verse 13, he says, you've overcome the evil one. And then in verse 14, he says, you were strong. The, the word of God abides in you. And then to the little children, you'll see that in verse 12, he says, your sins are forgiven for his name's sake. This encouragement that John writes to those who are young in the faith, it's simple enough for a child, but it's theologically thick enough. It's theologically thick enough for a seasoned theologian. So let me just conclude this sermon with this section. Because listen, if you guys don't get this, nothing about Christianity will actually make any sense to you. So we need to lean in and get this into our hearts. Jesus wants to give his people certainty, right? That, that they know Christ. So he, he first, he begins with the basis of that test, Christ's radical love. He shows that that test consists of examining your heart to see if you have given yourself in friendship. And then last, John wants to encourage you and give you the resources to rest in this love. And so first he shows a growth that it's a process, right? But then second, and, and what I want you to notice that he says, he says, your sins are forgiven for his name's sake. There is so much in that one little phrase. Listen, to the tender conscience person, I know you're here, you are forgiven. It's not pass this test and qualify to be saved, right? He says, no, 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 you're forgiven. A Christian is not a person who is trying to perform to merit forgiveness. Christians are people who humbly look at themselves and say, I don't, I don't get it, but I'm radically forgiven. It's all grace. Keeping up the Christian charade is not Christianity. It, Christianity is resting in what God has done, not in what you're doing. Now, you know why I know this is true? John says to this group, this audience, he says, your sins are forgiven. Past tense. This is definitive and conclusive. And do you know why we can be radically certain? It says because we are forgiven for his namesake. Listen, if, if I were to ask a person, why are you forgiven? There might be this impulse to say, I am forgiven because, uh, because I have faith and I am repentant. Now, I want to be very precise with this, okay? So listen very carefully. John says you are forgiven on account of, on the value of, his namesake. Now, this is so important that you guys get this right. If your faith rests on the depth of your sorrow, the sorrow that you feel of your sins, or the strength of your faith, you will always be anxious with God, right? Or worse, you'll always be faking it. I don't want that for you. Why? Because you know what? Your repentance, 
is always a mix of good and bad motives, right? I mean, sometimes you're sorry, but sometimes you're numb and stony. I know, because I'm your pastor. And your faith? What about your doubts? What about those moments when your faith is waning and and the complexities of your heart kind of catch up to you? What about those moments when you come to church and you're like, no, they're not playing enough Hillsong. I'm not getting goosebumps and you feel dry. What about that day? What certainty do you have in that moment? You will have no certainty. Listen, your repentance and faith receives forgiveness but it does not merit it. I don't want you to misunderstand this test. And on that day, when you are in utter mess, I want you to fall to your knees, and I want you to thank the Lord and say, Lord, I'm so thankful that your grip on me is tighter than my grip on you on account of your name. You are forgiven, not because you're good enough, not because you feel bad enough about your sins, not because your faith is bulletproof, not because you have some super secret, deep spiritual insight and knowledge. You are forgiven for his namesake. This was God's idea, and he loves you. And he loves you. I want you to have certainty because we're weary. Because we are weary. I want you to have certainty. I want you to rest in something other than your own performance. Remember, you guys, we don't believe in order to love. We love in order to believe. That's how it works. That's the deal. And what I'm telling you today, what John is writing in this letter, is beautiful enough to fall in love to. It's beautiful enough to fall in love to. May this capture your imagination. Amen. Amen.